Hello and welcome to the BJSIC Open podcast. Uh, my name is Piyush Pushka. I'm one of the two digital content editors of the BJSIC Open, uh, along with Dr. Romain Gadorup. And today I'm joined by three special guests. We have two authors of a recent paper in the BJSIC Open, and we're very lucky to have an expert by experience to help us discuss the paper and its implications. So just before I introduce our guests and the paper, I'll just say that this paper is part of the Refugee and Asylum Mental Health theme series that we published recently, which has loads of really interesting papers. Um, and we are going to do another podcast in the next month or so that covers the whole theme. So keep an eye out for that. But today we're going to zoom in on one paper, uh, which is researched and written by our guests today. And the title of the paper is Narrative Exposure Therapy for Survivors of Human Trafficking, uh, a Feasibility Randomised Controlled Trial. So the first author of the paper is Dr. Francesca Brady. Fran works within a specialist NHS refugee trauma service and on the doctorate in clinical psychology training programme at uh, University College London. Uh, hi and welcome, Fran. Thanks very much. Hi. And uh, joining her is Ajay, whose full name and title I'm not going to give, but he's the Expert by Experience Research Committee representative uh, at the Helen Bamber Foundation, as well as a social worker working with young refugees. Hi and welcome, Ajay. Hello, thank you. Thanks for having me today. And last but not least, there's another author on the paper, Professor Cornelius Cotona. Cornelius is Honorary Medical and Research Director at the Helen Bamber Foundation and the Royal College of Psychiatrists Lead on Refugee and Asylum Mental Health. Hi, Cornelius. Hello. Uh, right, so we're going to be talking about your paper on narrative exposure therapy. So I'd like to cover the paper itself as well as the research behind it and the actual context. Fran, can I start by just asking you to quickly summarise the paper so listeners get a feel for what we're talking about? Sure. So the background to why we did this project is that there's currently very limited evidence about treatments that might be helpful for individuals who've survived human trafficking including those presenting with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. So we were really hoping to expand on previous research that indicates that narrative exposure therapy, or we call it NET, could be helpful in treating PTSD and trafficking survivors. Just to explain a little bit about NET, so it's a trauma-focused talking therapy, which is specifically uh, for survivors of multiple or prolonged traumatic events. The aim is that the traumatic events are put into the context of the person's whole autobiographical story in their, of their life and that the traumas are processed to reduce the impact of intrusive PTSD symptoms. So sessions will involve close discussion of the traumatic events with the aim of processing those traumatic events that the person's been through. So in this study, we conducted a pilot randomized control trial. This was to explore the feasibility and acceptability of this treatment and also whether it would be feasible to deliver it within an RCT design, given the complex needs of the population and the, vulnerable, um, the vulnerabilities that the group have. So ultimately, we were able to recruit 25 trafficking survivors who had a history of multiple traumatic events. And we had two groups. So we had 15 receiving narrative exposure therapy and 10 allocated to a weightless control condition. Um, and overall, we had 13 people complete net and seven complete the waiting period. So we, we lost a few people. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And some of the participants were re receiving kind of holistic care within the organization where we conducted the research, whereas others were referred from external agencies um, into, the, into the trial specifically. We call those kind of trial only participants. I mentioned that because it's quite important in terms of some of our findings that we did 
it was important that people had access to holistic care. And we'll talk about that a bit more later, I'm, I'm sure. So in summary, we found that it was possible to deliver net to this vulnerable group of individuals, including through an RCT design. But we did think that maybe some modifications and flexibility may be required to the typical rigid RCT design. And um, some tentative analysis did show that there were some um, positive out outcomes in terms of net and the impact on reducing PTSD symptoms. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I absolutely agree with you that one of the many interesting things about the paper is uh, sort of wondering about the ethics of and the practicalities of doing research with this group of people. And, and, with, and some of that will be applicable, I think, to other groups of people as well. So just to explore the context a bit, Cornelius, maybe you could tell us a bit about what exactly human trafficking is. Okay. There are two terms that are quite widely used, human trafficking and modern slavery, and they're used pretty much interchangeably. But the idea is that they involve people being recruited for the purpose of exploitation and by the use of force or threat or coercion or fraud. So those are the three key ideas, that they are recruited, that the purpose is exploitation, and that bad, unpleasant means such as force or threat or coercion are used to enable that exploitation to take place. The purposes for which people are exploited are many and varied. I mean, they obviously many are exploited for sexual reasons, but also many are exploited for work. And many are exploited for criminal activities, such as begging or working on cannabis farms. And those are not mutually exclusive. People are often exploited for more than one reason. And people exploited for labor or for criminal activities almost invariably are sexually abused as well. And are you able to kind of just to describe the group of people that you might see um, who have been trafficked, uh, are you able to say a bit more about kind of the demographic characteristics, like who they are, where they come from, stuff like that, uh, and how they differ from other forced migrants? All right. I mean, the numbers are quite difficult because people don't wear badges saying, I have been trafficked. And quite often we find that people are involved in care systems for quite a long while, either in or having come out of the trafficking situation without making it clear that that is what's happened to them. Now, partly that may be that they don't want to admit it to themselves, and partly it may be because they don't realise the full seriousness of what has been done to them. In terms of world figures, though, um, probably the best estimate is that there's about 21 million survivors of human trafficking or modern slavery at any given time. And it is a huge business economically, perhaps worth a total of about $150 billion to the traffickers. In terms of UK figures, it's hard to be certain. Some victims of trafficking are dealt with in an official way through the national referral mechanism, and many other countries have similar national referral mechanisms for trying to deal with and support 
people identified as potential victims of trafficking. Um, in the UK, as far back as 2017, there were just over 5,000 people referred into the NRM. But it's generally agreed that that's an underestimate and probably there's at least two people not referred into the NRM for everyone who is. Having said that, the numbers referred into the national referral mechanism have gone up recently. The other demographic things to say quickly are that the gender balance is roughly 50-50. It's about two-thirds adults, one-third children. And in terms of the main form of exploitation in the UK, it's probably about 40% people being trafficked into sex work, about 27% into labour exploitation, about 9% into criminal activities. But those figures are, as I said, overlapping and quite approximate. Thanks, Cornelius. Um, so that's there's a lot there, isn't there? Just to zone in on kind of the specific trauma uh, and you know, wonder what kind of things do trafficked people typically experience. Ajay, are you able to say anything about that? Um, yes, sure. So um, trafficking survivors experience physical and, and psychological abuse, um, as well as feeling terrified and having no control over what is happening to them. Uh, some people experience severe physical health problems because of the conditions of their work or the violence and abuse they are subjected to. Um, some people are forced to take alcohol or drugs um, or might take them to cope with the horrendous they are in and may be struggling with addiction issues even after leaving the trafficking situation. There are also more complex psychological issues that trafficking survivors might experience. For example, they may have had a very complex relationship with the trafficker. Some people are trafficked by a family member, a friend or a romantic partner, for example, uh, which can have a huge impact on how the person can trust or relate to people even after they have escaped the trafficker. Um, also, after having a long period of having no choice or control and the needs being neglected, it can be really hard for people to identify their needs or feel able to ask for help or make decisions in their life. Trafficking can cause lifelong problems, especially if people cannot access appropriate psychological support. Brilliant, that's very helpful, thanks. And so the purpose of this paper was to look at helping these people with narrative exposure therapy. And the paper does mention that narrative exposure therapy is already used in a wide array of contexts, both high and low income countries and different client groups. Fran, you've already told us a bit about what this therapy is. I'm just wondering, what, why did we need further evidence for this particular group of people? And was there any reason that you or, or anyone might have thought that narrative exposure therapy might not work? So whilst we know that NET has been demonstrated to be an effective treatment for PTSD in individuals who've been displaced, displaced sorry, globally, we, uh, clinically, we see that there are a number of issues that are unique to survivors of trafficking, including their potential difficulties building trust and engaging with services, which can be more um, pronounced in this client group, even compared to other asylum seekers or vulnerable migrants. And this could be potentially relevant for treatment delivery. 
So prior to developing this pilot study, Cornelius and some other colleagues published a small case series, which did indicate that NET was a promising treatment for survivors of sexual exploitation specifically. We were not concerned that NET wouldn't work per se, but we were really keen to expand the research using a more robust methodology. Um, And we wanted to test the waters a little bit with a pilot study first to better understand any unexpected ethical, practical or clinical issues that might emerge when we were trying to attempt to randomise trials with this group of individuals. Brilliant. Okay, so let, let's talk a bit about the um, the research itself. Frank, can you tell us a bit about recruitment? And, um, you know, were, were there any limitations based on how long it passed since, since the trauma or anything like that? Sure, maybe Cornelius can also chip in if needed, but um, I think it's fair to say that recruitment was fairly tricky at times. It took longer than we anticipated, and we had to actually stop it before we met our target number included in, that we hoped for to the trial and in part that was due to the relatively small number of referrals that the organization where the research took place can accept because the organization does not work exclusively with trafficking survivors so we also had fairly limited resources um, in order to um, kind of run the project and to advertise the study more widely. So to address recruitment challenges, we try to open the trial to referrals from local partner organizations such as charities and law firms and approximately half of both the groups, so the net group and the control group, were trial-only participants. Um, so we did actually, I think, assess about 55 people, but only enrolled about half of that. And the main reason that people weren't progressed into the trial was because they didn't meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, which is not uncommon for survivors of trafficking. There can be a multitude of different difficulties that people might experience. And some, I guess, non-clinician professionals might think that looks like PTSD so they were referred into the trial but they didn't actually meet the criteria and other reasons were of course people maybe being in crisis or having received trauma-focused therapy in the past that was one of our um, exclusion criteria that we wanted people who hadn't already tried trauma-focused therapy Um, so we didn't actually make any limitations based on the time since their trauma other than that the individual had to meet the criteria for PTSD so therefore by definition it must have been at least a month since their trauma occurred but for many people it was many years since their trauma had actually happened and in reality as I said for most people it had been been many years that they'd experienced these traumatic events so we didn't actually control for that we um, were open to working with people no matter how long since the trauma or how how long their trauma history was and am I right in thinking that these are people that uh, might have experienced trauma over or multiple traumas over very long periods of time as well? Yes, yeah, sorry if I wasn't clear about that. All of the people who took part in the trial had experienced multiple traumas. For some, that had been maybe multiple episodes of trafficking. For some, it might have been one episode of trafficking that lasts for a very long time. Some may have also had traumatic events that occurred outside of the trafficking experience and we didn't limit the treatment only to the trafficking traumas we were working with net in a very holistic way so if people had earlier traumas or later traumas beyond the trafficking experience we would also be seeking to address those in therapy if i if i could chip in briefly there i mean i I think it's a really important point that victims of trafficking almost invariably experience multiple and repeated trauma i mean the the trafficking situation itself is intrinsically one of repeated trauma. And in our experience, it's very often one in which that trauma is varied, is multiple. And I think that's important partly because there is increasing evidence, and that was something that emerged in terms of diagnostic criteria during the time that we were doing the study. There's a notion that 
a lot of people who experience multiple and repeated trauma develop a condition which in ICD-11 is known as complex PTSD, in which in addition to the criteria for PTSD, which we had as a requirement for this study, they also have disorders of self-organization, which is characterized particularly by low self-esteem, difficulty in regulating emotions, and difficulty in forming and maintaining relationships. And that's very much what I think we found not only in the trial population, but it's been very much our clinical experience at the Helen Bamber Foundation with the survivors of trafficking whom we work with. We find that many more fulfill criteria for complex PTSD than do for PTSD. And that may be important in terms of the way that they present and their treatment needs and the need to demonstrate that this treatment modality works despite those other clinical features. Just following on from that, uh, so this study is focusing on PTSD and you've also mentioned disorders of self-organisation. Are there any other sort of disorders that this particular client group commonly experience or other kind of modes of experiencing distress or communicating distress? And I think what AJ said was a really good start. Um, One thing I'd add is that we need to remember that not everybody who is trafficked develops a full-blown diagnosable psychiatric illness. So they may experience distress, they may have anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms, some PTSD symptoms, but they may never go above the diagnostic threshold, or they may have gone above the diagnostic threshold, but may no longer be in that relatively severe state at the time when they seek help all the time when we come across them. The other thing that we often find, and I think this links to the point Fran was making earlier about recruitment, a lot of the survivors of trafficking that we see are extremely keen to get on with their lives and prioritise getting on with education or getting back into work over and above their therapy needs. And we do sometimes find people who try very hard, despite having quite severe and disabling continuing symptoms. That's very much my impression. Just with the practicalities of doing research, um, of this particular research, just wanted to ask a bit about that as well. Um, So you mentioned like nine people met the inclusion criteria, but then declined to get involved for various reasons. Seven didn't want therapy at that moment in time. One more started and then uh, dropped out. Um, I wonder if, Fran, you could say a bit more about that. And The reason I'm sort of curious is because this point is kind of potentially very relevant for the ethics and practicalities of doing research with uh, this patient population, but it's also kind of relevant for even non-research active clinicians who are just trying to work out how to deliver patient-centred care in, in general. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really key issue. And I think we definitely see that a lack of service flexibility can be a real barrier for trafficking survivors to access treatment. Many services will have different pressures and have to manage their waiting lists. But as trafficking survivors may have fluctuating practical needs, 
that sometimes these can change suddenly or for reasons out of their control. This really can have a significant impact on their ability to access treatment at a time that they are stable enough to engage with it and benefit from it. So we see that trafficking survivors often will end up at the bottom of a long waiting list. And by the time they make it to the top, something else might have happened to them. Yet again, you know, they're discharged and then the cycle continues. So um, at the organisation where the research was conducted, we are keen there to offer as much flexibility as we can around treatment. Obviously, that was limited in this trial about how, how flexible we could be. But we try to prioritise people for treatment at a point when they are ready. And as our team offers kind of holistic, practical support, this means that we can ensure that we're doing everything we can to stabilise people and ensure that they can maximise the opportunities for engaging in psychological therapy where it's available. You know, even for those clients who did engage with treatment, we did need to offer a bit more flexibility. For example, there were clients who were made homeless on the day that they were supposed to come to a session, which did mean that, you know, maybe a session's not going to happen that day or something else needs to be prioritised that day instead. And of course, other factors that might mean that people aren't ready for treatment can be the ongoing legal uncertainty that they have. They might not feel safe enough or ready to talk about some of the very kind of shaming or difficult traumas that they have been through. Um, we try to give all people um, the evidence about why trauma-focused therapy can be helpful and really support them into making their own informed choices about what type of therapy to engage with and when. Many trafficking survivors really struggle to understand or assert their own needs. And so I actually, when people say, no, now is not a great time for me, I'm actually really delighted that they've been able to identify that as something that is not right for them in that moment and try to really um, acknowledge that, but try to problem solve and troubleshoot to make sure that the person can come back to therapy when they're ready. Brilliant, thanks. I think that sort of uh, feeds into what I was going to ask about next, which is about the trial only side of, of the study. Uh, so I think I'm right in saying that some people were trial only, and that's in contrast to the patients who received not only the narrative exposure therapy that you were studying, um, that, your, that was the main kind of thing that you were uh, researching in this study, but also the rest of the holistic care that the charity kind of provides, um, which I think includes advice, support, help with housing documents, stuff like that. So that holistic care, I think, was being provided for uh, controls and treatment arms of the study. But then uh, there were some people that you were unable to provide that holistic care for. So they were just getting the, the treatment itself. So uh, could you tell us a bit more about those participants? And because the study mentions that they required more sessions often to deal with the legal and social problems that you've already kind of touched on, like the person becoming homeless. And it's not really expanded on in the paper because it's not germane to the specific aims and objectives of that paper. But I'm just wondering, because this, this is super relevant for all of us that are delivering care for people, um, you know, marginalised populations in general and, and specifically this population. Uh, what happened in those in those extra sessions? Because the, the, the trial-only clients had ended up requiring more sessions of the therapy to to kind of I think make up for the fact that they weren't getting the rest of the stuff that the charity provides. 
Maybe I can answer this one and Cornelius do chip in if you have anything to add. Um, so yes, the main reason that we recruited trial only participants, I have to say, was a pragmatic decision around recruitment. Um, but actually, when we thought about it, we were interested to find out, could we deliver the therapy effectively in the absence of the practical support that we are used to being able to provide? Um, I think the answer to that was probably a resounding no, unfortunately. Um, we hadn't really anticipated how much additional work our therapists would end up taking on to support clients with our practical needs because of the limitations on our colleagues in the in the rest of the organization we couldn't really look to our kind of housing and welfare colleagues or our legal colleagues to help us with some of these issues so our very well trained and experienced therapists um, who are very used to dealing with these issues but normally with support of colleagues did spend a lot of extra time making referrals to other agencies writing letters etc so we um, didn't really closely document unfortunately what the non-net sessions were used for so we allowed for in advance in our protocol up to four sessions of non-net uh, activity in you know so up to 24 sessions in total so 20 sessions of net four sessions of non-net kind of expecting that there would be issues that would come up even though we also were looking initially to recruit people who were relatively settled I think it just shows you that settled is not something that is a stable concept for people in this situation unfortunately so um, although we didn't record exactly what we, we, they were used for anecdotally we kind of know that they were used for issues such as homelessness legal difficulties destitution for example, I had one client who attended a session on a day where it was really snowing and they didn't even have a coat. So, of course, my main concern at that point was how can we make sure this client's destitution needs and urgent needs are being met rather than focusing on net for this um, session. So our overall lesson was that to deliver therapy effectively and I think ethically, in my opinion, you do need to make sure that there is adequate provision for the practical needs of trafficking survivors and all other vulnerable migrants who might be facing these similar issues, um, whether that be in a research setting or a routine clinical setting. But we certainly found that it wasn't that those practical issues weren't being addressed. You know, our therapists were just working overtime to get them resolved. Brilliant. Thank you. I think there's really important lessons there for people designing services in general. Um, like there's, a, there's a reason that the charity has evolved in the way to provide holistic care and you know that came out I think in, in uh, what the those therapists ended up having to to do. Sorry to interrupt but yeah, I just yeah. um, wondered if AJ might want to add in a few points around that and might have some useful um, points. Yeah sure um, I think yeah I think um, I think if people are not worried about where they are going to sleep um, that night or whether they are going to be able to get something to eat um, it means that they can really participate in the session fully uh, if these things are still uncertain, it can be really hard for people to focus on dealing with their trauma and therapy. Uh, one of the things that made a big difference um, for many people being able to attend was the transport cost that was provided um, to get to the sessions being covered. Um, if this hadn't been the case, I think there may have been many people missing their appointments or dropping out of treatment. Yeah, thank you for that, AJ. Again, super important lessons for service delivery, I think, and and those lessons should be learned uh, not just by those working in charities, but also um, within kind of I work within the NHS, and I think we need to incorporate this lesson, these lessons, into how we design our services in in general. Um, and, and the joined up care that this charity is uh, clearly providing across disciplines, not just the um, uh, the therapists, but also linking up with the other disciplines as well. So if we move on to outcomes, 
Fran or Cornelius, uh, I'm not sure who wants to take this one, but tell us what, what you found. If I make a start on that one, and Fran will go into more detail, but essentially what we found was that net looked very promising. It's worth emphasising that this was a an exploratory study, so we didn't design it in order to show to have sufficient power to be likely to show statistical significance of the size of effect that we anticipated. Somewhat to my surprise the difference in outcome between net and treatment as usual, the control condition, was actually quite big. And even with these small numbers, it reached statistical significance. And it reached statistical significance not only for trauma symptoms, but also for depression and anxiety symptoms. So we we did show quite a large effect And we think that that's a clinically meaningful effect. And we also found an effect that was quite long lasting. So we did follow up and the net group maintained, if anything, slightly uh, enhanced their improvement over the follow up. And that was in contrast with the control group. So I, I think we've shown that this is a treatment which really does have great promise in this group. Um, I'm not sure what I've left out, but Fran will tell us. I don't have much to add, Cornelius, other than to say I think we were all pleasantly surprised by how you know, acceptable the treatment was and how well engaged the survivors were, how, how low the dropout rates were. And the dropout was, you know, I think only in one case was related to the actual treatment and not feeling ready for that treatment. Otherwise, the issues were normally related to practical issues um, and also that the RCT design was generally successful other than the, obviously the kind of some of the limitations we talked about in relation to practical needs but actually that um, survivors were able to kind of understand and engage with the research process and that has really kind of reassured us that a full-scale trial kind of exploring this would be feasible. Thanks. And I was wondering as well with, you know, the focus on the person's trauma and, uh, you know, close discussion of their trauma, is there a risk of re-traumatising people? Uh, Perhaps you could speak not just from your experience of of this trial, but uh, I think, Fran, you've done that, you're quite experienced in it. Yes, absolutely. I think it's something that clinicians are often really worried about in talking about trauma in detail, that they might be re-traumatising people or forcing them to think about things that are very horrible and they don't want to think about. But of course, all the evidence shows that actually processing trauma and talking about it can be really helpful and it can actually be really powerful for the individual to think in more detail about the trauma when it has been so heavily avoided. It can lead people to kind of have a particular narrative about the event. And actually, when you think about it in more detail, people might be able to engage with other details that can reduce things like shame or self-blame. And, um, you know, the experience that we often hear from clients is that actually it's been really helpful to be able to say things that have previously felt unsayable or that they don't think someone else can bear to listen to and actually taking back a bit more control over their narrative. I wonder, AJ, did you have anything that you wanted to add maybe about whether net can be something that's traumatic? Um, Yeah, sure. I think think although it can be really difficult to talk about trauma, um, we know that trying to avoid them and push them to back of your mind 
doesn't really make it stop or go away. Um, the memories will still just keep coming back to you. Um, in net, I think, although it's difficult to confront those memories and talk about them in detail, talking about these things in a safe space with someone you trust is really, really important and can make a big difference to how you feel in the long term. Going through your whole life can really help a person to understand themselves more and help them to deal with their problems in a different way. Um, it can be a difficult treatment, but definitely not traumatic. Can I can I just add a little bit to that? I mean, I think I think what what Fran and AJ have said is really important, and I entirely agree with it. But I think it's important to remember that what they've both been talking about is people who actually have engaged in treatment. And one of the things that I see quite a lot in my work, which is doing assessments of people in the context of their asylum claims, is that lots of people don't seek treatment. And I think that not seeking treatment is really often best understood as an avoidant strategy, as something that people do because it's part of their PTSD that they feel worse if they talk about difficult things and therefore they choose not to. And the point that AJ made about having to be in a trusting relationship in, with the therapist in order to be able to do that, but added to that, having to be in a sufficiently stable situation, stable in terms of being able to control symptoms and stable in terms of having a situation that at least has some predictability, having some stability of accommodation, having some plan in terms of one's asylum situation. Without those things, engaging in therapy is extremely difficult. I mean, that's not surprising from a common sense point of view, but if you add to that the avoidant nature of PTSD, you will find a lot of people who don't engage in treatment and that is a huge challenge yeah so following from that you mentioned avoidance fran you mentioned kind of self-blame ajay you mentioned kind of um recurring thoughts um and there's a, there's a brief section towards the end of the paper that mentions shame which i think kind of links these things um and that section says that the therapist noticed that shame often came up with with clients and actually that was often a barrier to engaging fully with therapy um i was wondering if one of you maybe fran uh, could say a bit more about that and how that fits with other evidence sure i mean shame is a really big issue when working with survivors of any trauma particularly trafficking um, many survivors blame themselves for what happened or feel unable to talk about the full details of what happened because the abuse was just so extensive and horrific. And of course, they are very much told that it's their fault and they are the ones that are bad. And that might be reinforced by people's responses if they try to seek help. You know, some people might have experienced rejection or alienation on account of being forced into prostitution, for example, and um, the kind of connotations that that might have for some people and that can be a very difficult experience and make it even harder for people to seek help and, and talk about what's happened um, for example we see that men particularly who might have experienced sexual abuse even in the context of other forms of trafficking so for example in the context of forced labor um, this can be missed 
if it's not explicitly asked about. So we do try to always routinely ask survivors about it, but it can, of course, take a lot of time for people to disclose these events. They do need to feel like they can trust the other, the other person the, and the clinician. So it's actually not a surprise to us if people make these disclosures much later on in therapy after they've already been attending sessions for a while. It, but I guess that means that you might have to adapt your therapy plan. You might be surprised and need to add in a few more sessions where things um, come up that maybe they haven't kind of disclosed at the beginning of therapy. And shame can have a big impact on kind of therapy outcomes if it's not addressed directly. And sometimes treatment does need to be extended to ensure that this issue has been fully addressed. Sometimes NET does have good effectiveness for people who've experienced very shaming traumas. Um, but there are also, of course, other models of therapy that more specifically address shame, such as compassion-focused therapy. Um, and sometimes in clinical practice, I know that people will combine some compassion-focused therapy, maybe having that at the beginning of a course of trauma-focused therapy or the end. We don't, don't normally mix it up in the middle. Um, we didn't do that for this trial, of course, because we were trying to look at NET specifically and, of course, had very good outcomes in terms of the PTSD symptoms. And anecdotally, you know, many clients reported that their feelings of shame had massively reduced by the end of therapy um, and they felt very much able to talk about what had happened and some have even gone on to become, like, survivor activists in terms of being able to talk more openly about their experiences. Very interesting, thanks. Um, were you going to say something there, Cornelius? Well, I was just going to say that the, the notion of shame is very much a part of the negative self-concept, which is in turn part of the notion of complex PTSD, so it's not surprising. Um, you know, these, these things fit together a bit. I think the other point to make, and this is with my sort of campaigning voice on, is that the problems that Fran mentioned with disclosure are often thought, particularly by the Home Office or by immigration judges, as a sign that, you know, whatever it is, isn't true. If, if it was true, surely you would have said so straight away. And the notion of shame and the notion of difficulties in disclosure and delayed disclosure can be hugely difficult in a lot of people's asylum claims. And it is the role of us as mental health clinicians to try and explain those links with the underlying mental health problems, to make them understandable. Yeah, uh, super important. Uh, thanks for that, Cornelius. So it kind of speaks to the how the political context and the structural issues uh, can contribute to and shape the problems that people are experiencing and also the way that they actually communicate those problems to, to other people. Just a bit more on the political context, uh, this research took place in the UK. Um, I'm wondering, so this research took place in a charity. Where where can people access NET in the UK? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. NET, in theory, is available all over the country, but as it's a relatively new treatment compared with some others, it's not as widely available as other treatments that have been around maybe for a bit longer. And I would say it is a bit of a postcode lottery. However, myself and some colleagues have been training therapists in IAPT in the use of NET to improve access for specifically for asylum seekers and refugees. So we do hope that the treatment is going to become more widely available over time. Um, so capacity building for offering NET is happening, but it's just quite a slow process, of course. Yeah. And uh, Ajay, are you aware of any um, issues with people struggling with access? Um, 
I mean, I would say this is not specific to net per se, but I, of course, see in my work with young refugees um, that there are huge barriers to accessing mental health treatment. This can be factors relating to the individual, such as feeling afraid or ashamed, like we talked about earlier, um, to talk about their problems or just not feeling ready to talk about it. Uh, but also there are big systemic problems with service waiting lists being very, very long. And by the time a young person reaches the top of the list, something else has happened in their life and they are no longer ready to engage in, tra- in treatment. Uh, there also seems to be uh, not enough people with the skills to help trusting survivors. Uh, many people are offered offered support that is not suitable for them, such as being offered counselling when they really need an evidence-based treatment for PTSD, um, such as NET. We need services to be resourced properly to be able to provide the right treatment in a flexible way, as well as the practical support around this, such as providing interpreters and helping people with housing and legal needs. Brilliant, thanks. So we're getting close to to wrapping up now. I'm just going to ask each of you kind of uh, about you know what your next steps are. So, Fran, you're you're a researcher and a clinician. So t- tell us a bit about you know what your next steps are. Um, so I think maybe our answers, Ryan and Cornelius, might be kind of connected because I think our in relation to trafficking, um, we're hoping to um, extend this work and look towards a full-scale trial and maybe leave Cornelius to speak a bit more to that but also doing some kind of smaller research so I obviously work on a training program for clinical psychologists so supervising trainees in completing some research around trust and betrayal in in trafficking survivors and we also have a paper that I hope will come out soon which is looking specifically at the ritualized spiritual abuse in trafficking survivors and how people make disclosures about that and and how they hope services can support them with that so those are the things that are kind of currently brewing around but Cornelius maybe you can talk a little bit more about the kind of larger ambitions. This was a pilot study an exploratory study and so the intention was and remains to do something larger scale because of the increasing emerging importance of complex PTSD and the high rates of complex PTSD in this population. And we find very high rates both in our trafficking population and in our other clients, survivors of other forms of extreme human cruelty. We um, we think that complex PTSD is a really important group in whom to evaluate NET And we also think that more generally, refugees and asylum seekers are a group in whom it's important to evaluate it properly. So that is the main larger thing we would like to do is a full scale trial of NET in refugees and asylum seekers with complex PTSD. And the other justification for doing that is that what we can't take for granted, the main reason why the treatment, why the larger trial would be justified in addition to what we've already said is that most of the evidence to date is on PTSD, on the intrusion and avoidance and hypervigilance type symptoms, but not on the disorders of self-organization. So designing a trial in complex PTSD would enable us to look at the impact on that set of symptom clusters in addition to the PTSD clusters. But like Fran, I'm very excited by the notion that it should be possible to train more people and make net 
which is an evidence-based therapy, and we've added to that evidence to make it available to more people within and outside the NHS. And personally, I'm very excited by the notion that it is becoming more available in primary care because that is where most mental health is treated and increasingly where most complex mental health is treated. So trying to establish this sort of treatment, which we think is viable, in that primary care setting would potentially increase its availability hugely. Brilliant. Thanks. Uh, and that, I think that uh, it's good that you mentioned there that it would be great to be able to offer more nets, not just within charities, but also uh, within the NHS, uh, just speaking to the fact that these charities exist because of the fact that there's a, a huge gap and a huge need that isn't being provided for by existing public services, hence the need for the charity to step in. Ajay, so you're a social worker as well as an activist. Um, can you tell us a bit about you know, what your next steps are? Is, is, will this study change or inform your work or campaigning? Um, sure. So I think um, this study has really helped me to um, value the importance of valuing the person's whole lifetime narrative when I'm working with young refugees or unaccompanied minors, um, I don't want to just focus on an aspect of their lives, such as the trauma, out of the context of all their experiences. So I think it's important to really get to know the young person. It has also made me much more aware of how valuable this treatment can be for trafficking survivors in particular. And I try um, to make sure I educate other professionals and services and recommend this treatment for the young people I work with. For example, when they are accessing mental health services, I just just wanted to add that clinicians, I think, really do need to pay attention to the social needs of their clients. They are not something you can rely on the person being able to sort out by themselves or that other agency will pick up. I think it's important to try and make practical support integrated and accessible in the same place as psychological treatment as far as possible. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, so we are kind of running up to the end of our time now. So we're going to wrap up. I just want to briefly mention a couple of charities that listeners might be interested in uh, following this podcast. Firstly, the Helen Bamber Foundation, which is the organisation that Cornelius works for. Uh, and they provide various forms of care for survivors of trafficking and torture, as well as doing medical legal reports. They have a website that fully explains what they do. So you, if you're in the UK and either you're a survivor yourself or you have a client who is a survivor, do check them out and see if they might be helpful for you. I think they have offices in, in London. And uh, Freedom from Torture is another one, uh, is a similar organisation that also has offices in Manchester, Newcastle, Birmingham and Glasgow. Do any of you want to highlight any other resources or organisations that listeners might find helpful? There are many organisations which are contracted to provide support for people who are alleged victims of trafficking during the, the time that those claims are being uh, investigated. And the Salvation Army is the sort of umbrella organisation that oversees itself and several other organisations that provide that support. And a lot of the work they do is, is very um, high quality. So I think particularly in terms of care for victims of trafficking, it's worth looking at the work they do and some of the, the allied organisations such as Hestia, for example. 
Um, just to say that the Human Trafficking Foundation also do have on their website um, a kind of map of different services across the country. So that can be a useful place to start looking for resources. And one other resource that I think it would be worth mentioning is the recently published uh, just last year guidance on national referral mechanisms published by the ODIHR, which, which is read as ODIA. But um, they are a Europe and beyond organization, and they've published a very large and extremely good, I'm biased, but I think it is, guidebook on national referral mechanisms. And we at the Helen Bamber Foundation were quite centrally involved, and our uh, director of counter-trafficking, Rachel Whitkin, was the sort of first author of the book. So I'm plugging that but I'm plugging it partly because it's an opportunity to plug, but mainly because it's a really good book. And it's available for free as a PDF online, and you can find it on our website. That's really helpful. Thank you. So, Fran, Ajay, Cornelius, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Just to remind everyone, the accompanying paper is available in the BJ Psych Open. Uh, like all BJ Psych Open papers, it's open access, and it's called Narrative Exposure Therapy for Survivors of Human Trafficking, a Feasibility Randomised Control Trial. Uh, so thanks for listening to this BJ, BJ Psych Open podcast. For the latest updates, you can follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. Uh, to listen to more podcasts, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. Uh, the podcast channel actually includes podcasts from our sister BJ Psych journals uh, as well. So from BJ Psych Advances and BJ Psych International. So if you look at the channel, you'll find loads of fascinating content. There's recent ones on uh, drug misuse in Sri Lanka, on yoga and mental health, on the concept of triage and mental health care. Loads of stuff. Check it out. Okay, thanks, everyone. See you next time.